This morning, if you'll remain standing with me as we uh, share in God's good word from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. This is where Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple. Uh, This is the only place where it happens at the beginning of the Gospel in the other three Gospels. This story is in all four Gospels. Um, But in this time, it happens early on so that we can see clearly who Jesus is. That's John's point. Let's share in God's good word together. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. You ever get the sense that maybe you come to a point where you need a little more than a coat of paint? That maybe the situation that you find yourself is out of hand. That maybe it's bigger than you thought and what's about to happen is going to be more expensive than you thought. There comes these times in our lives where we know that a little tweak here, a little remodel there in our fixer upper just won't do. And so often when we came to the, I came to this scripture growing up, I thought, well, Jesus is just sort of tweaking the abuses of the temple. But by the time we get done today, I hope that you will find that he is about something much greater than that, much bigger than that. This story is not just that Jesus gets angry and so we can get angry. That's not what this story is about. But don't let me get my, ahead of myself. We are in a series called Fixer Upper. Will you say Fixer Upper with me? Fixer Upper, as in we all are one. We all need God. That's, that's why we come to grow and to learn and then to go out and to grow and learn some more. And so if you've been with us, uh, this is our third installment of Lent. We're in the third week of Lent as we move from Jesus' early ministry towards the cross. And so if you were with us um, last week and the week before, if you'll take your sermon notes out, um, it goes like this. The remodel so far in week one, a transformed life is available to you, to every person. It's possible And if you are like me, there are times in your life where you wonder, can I really still change? The things that we struggled with at 10 or 12 or 16 or 25 or 35, and and we find ourselves still struggling with that at at 50 or 60 or 70, you wonder, can can I really change? Or or is this just who I am? Can I I actually become more like Jesus? Jesus. And, and with everything that I am, I want you to know the answer is yes. Transformation is possible, but it takes the very best of who we are. It takes Christ's power living in us. It takes our surrender to Christ taking over us. And we do that in community. It's not something we do alone. It's something we do together. So yes, and that's week one. Jesus goes to be baptized in the Jordan. And the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And things that he had never done before, he begins to do in the power of the Spirit. Healing and miracles and feeding the 5,000 and and giving sight to the blind. The second week is a transformed life requires suffering. Read these with me. Suffering, rejection, and death. That's a good time. And that's why we don't want to do it. And Jesus didn't want to do it either, but he was obedient even unto death. Friends, if you were to follow Jesus, it will require pain in your life. In the same way, you're going to get stronger physically by lifting weights or running, and that's painful. Anybody who's ever done that knows that the next day hurts. As you get older, the second day hurts worse, right? Suffering. And if you, if you take this seriously and you do what the early church fathers had told us to do, the desert fathers and all the early Christian mystics, they would tell you, if you want to get close to Christ, you've got to get alone. 
You've got to get in solitude. You've got to check your phone. They didn't have phones, but we do. You've got to check your phone and leave it somewhere, and you have to tell your family, look, I'm going to spend extended time before the Lord without interruption. I'm going to go for two hours, three hours, a day, two days, and I'm going to listen with all that I am about what God wants to do in me in my life. Friends, it all starts with solitude and silence. And for many folks in this room, you, you can't even imagine solitude or silence. Even for 30 minutes, because you've got little ones. And, and they're around you all the time. And, and let me tell you this. The first time that I got intentional, it was, it was about 20 years ago, I, I finally got intentional about going away and, and having solitude and listening to God. And, and we had two little kids, um, about one and three at that time. Let me tell you this. Chantel did not enjoy it. She felt rejected. Right? Because every solitude is rejection to people that we love. Because you're not with them. Oh, you've got 12 hours for God, but you don't have 12 hours for me? Make no mistake, friends. If you actually take this seriously and you welcome suffering into your life for something God wants to do, if you actually have solitude and silence, somebody's going to feel rejected. And what that means is something in your life has to die. It may not be your physical death. Ultimately, it will. But, but this, is, this is the beginning of a transformed life. And it's super hard. It really is hard. You can do it in Christ's power, but it's not an easy road. It's not an easy road. So you might sum it up like this. G.K. Chesterton wrote, The Christian ideal or the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Maybe the reason we haven't had a transformed life is we've never really tried Christianity. The late Billy Graham would say it like this. He says, In America, we have vaccinated Christians. Just enough, a little bit of worship that we never get the whole thing vaccinated Christians. So I I want you to see um, what this journey of Jesus looks like. The journey to Jerusalem. The scripture says it like this, when the Passover feast celebrated each spring by the Jews was about to take place, Jesus traveled up to Jerusalem. Now around here, we wouldn't say up to Jerusalem. We would say down to Jerusalem. And so Nazareth is up here where, where Jesus lives. See, Galilee's going to be here. He doesn't come through the mountain range at Samaria this time. He comes down here. He goes all the way down the river valley, hangs a ride at Jericho, and then back into Jerusalem. This is not an easy um, thing to do, friends. It's very difficult. It's very dangerous. And the more people that would get on those roads, the more dangerous it became because as the roads would swell with people for the Passover, the robbers and the bandits would roll out because it was easy pickings because everybody had to bring um, money to the temple to buy the sheep and the cattle and the goats um, and to make their temple offering. And if, if you haven't ever been there, it looks like this. We took this photo um, this last summer when we were there. And you can see the riverbed here, and so the path would follow the riverbed. There is lots of places to hide if you're abandoned. There's no way to know what's coming around the next bend. And so people would travel in groups and pairs and try to fortify themselves because this was a dangerous, dangerous road, and nobody in their right mind would travel it alone. So this, this road from Nazareth to Jerusalem is 120 miles, which is at least a five-day walk. And this five-day walk would include making sure you had enough water to make it so you don't die of dehydration and food. And, and you're taking a whole bunch of folks with you. Now, I want you to think about this. In Jesus', in Jesus lifetime, every devout Jewish male went to Jerusalem three times a year. They would make this trek from wherever you lived. And so for Jesus and Nazareth, what that meant 
was that round trip, this is 240 miles. He's going three times a year. He's going to go every year, three times a year, between the ages of 5 and 30, which means Jesus, in these trips alone, walked more than 18,000 miles in his lifetime, just to Jerusalem, to Nazareth. And not only that, Jesus is doing this at Passover with more than 2 million Jews filling up Jerusalem from all over the world for the Passover. You would remember that Passover is the biggest festival that they had where they would remember from the time of Moses, 1,300 years earlier, where God passed over their homes if they had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, passed over their homes, and yet killed the Egyptians, the firstborn of the Egyptians. And so they they came to remember God's faithfulness and, and God's promise of the promised land and freedom. And so as they would come back to this Passover, every Jew over 19 years of age was required to pay the temple tax. What kind of tax was it? Say it with me. Temple tax. Now, that's that's important, and it's specific. But this wasn't as easy as it sounds. I mean, none of us like to pay taxes, but in their way, it was even harder. You see, there was the old temple, and it had problems. This is actually the second temple. The first temple was um, basically destroyed in 586. Uh, B.C. by the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq, and so it was wiped out. And then in 19 B.C., um, Herod the Great began to rebuild it with help from the Romans to try to keep the peace in the area. So the second temple, if you were to go um, to see that in Jesus' day, it would look like this. Uh, You can see sort of the path at the bottom here um, coming up and the Golden Gate there. Uh, All of these would be filled with those um, millions of people or at least hundreds of thousands of people. And over here in the red is going to be the money changers. And so you're going to have goats and sheep and dove. And in here is the inner courts where the priest would be. And in here is the Holy of Holies, which is where you would make your burnt sacrifice, where you would be made right with God. Now, I want you to notice that the temple is so huge. It's built at the highest point of Jerusalem, and it takes up a third of the entire city. I mean, you imagine where you, where you live, the temple is a third of it, and the rest of the town is the other two-thirds. There was no way to miss this. It's said that the, the Holy of Holies here is about nine stories tall. I mean, that, that is huge um, for that time period. I mean, it's a skyscraper. And, and you can go there today. It doesn't look like that anymore. Um, it looks like this. Uh, there's Chantel and Noah and I uh, in front of the Dome of the Rock. The Muslims built the Dome of the Rock in the place that they believed the Holy of Holies was. So it's the same place that Abraham um, sacrificed Isaac uh, as the Holy of Holies. It's the most holy site for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. It's a holy site for all those folks. It's now under control uh, of the Waqfa, uh, which is an entity of the Muslims uh, in that area. And so when you go there, you've got Jews and Muslims and Christians all there together, worshiping in different ways, all at the temple. But we're standing on the same stones and rocks that would have been there in Jesus' day. We're literally walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Um, And so there you see other people of other traditions uh, making their pilgrimage to the Holy of Holies as well, to the Dome of the Rock and the Temple Mount. Uh, I also want to show you these two really cute people we found there. Um, They're awesome Um, here on the front row with us today. Um, But I want to show you this because do you see the incredible throw between where they are and where the Holy of Holies would have been? This is hundreds of thousands of yards, people, right? It's not just a little bit. These are football fields, uh, big. And and and, and you can go there even today. Some of it is original. Some of it has been built on over centuries and millennia. And it's 
it's at this place that Jesus comes from Nazareth. And he puts together a whip out of strips of leather and he chases them out of the temples, stampeding the sheep and the cattle out of the gates, upending the, temples, the tables of the loan sharks, and he spills their coins left and right. Now, like I said earlier, a lot of times I um, had thought of Jesus and I've heard sermons uh, talked about, hey, Jesus got angry and he was so angry at the abuses of the temple. Well, yes, there's a piece of that that's true, but he was doing something much more. When I look at Jesus here, he's, he hasn't lost his temper. He hasn't lost his cool. He, it's not that he doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's in overturning the entire religious system that they've known for more than a thousand years. He's doing it intentionally. He does it systematically. And he does it at the worst possible time. Can you imagine somebody going into Walmart on Black Friday and going, close it down. There'll be no gifts at Christmas this year. That's not what Christmas is about. You can imagine the manager of Walmart's like, "Um, excuse me, who are you? What are you doing? Because how today goes determines how the rest of the year goes for us. That's what Jesus was doing. He came in and shut down the temple on the busiest day of the year. And they could do nothing. And this is why. Because pilgrims from all over the world with all kinds of coins came to pay their temple tax. What kind of tax was it? Temple tax. So if I come to you from Rome, from Italy, and I've made the pilgrimage all the way there, I'm going to try to pay with a Roman coin that looks like this, that's got Caesar's face on it. Right? In the same way we would have George Washington on our money, they would have Caesar on their money, and they would say at the sanctuary, no, 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 your money's no good here. That's idol worship. We can't use that. You see, foreign currency was polluted, unacceptable. You had to pay with what kind of shekel? Temple shekel. It's temple offering. Temple shekel. Now, Caesar may be okay for other kinds of debts, but your debt to God? No. You got to use a temple shekel. Temple shekels look like this. Understated. The cup of the Passover. Right? You had, you had to change that. Now, do you imagine that if you had to change your money from Caesar to temple, that they did that for free? No. You see, this maneuver required money changers. They had to change it. And the cost of purchasing the acceptable coins was one day's wage. An entire day's wage. Now, you think about what you make in a day. Now, how many people were coming to Jerusalem for Passover? Two million? There was some money to be made at the temple. I don't know what a day's wage was for them necessarily, but let's just say it was five bucks. Five bucks times two million people, ten million dollars in a week. There's some money to be made. And how that day went might supply everything they needed for their family all year. And Jesus stops it dead in its tracks. And they'd kill him for it in short order. You see, as people came, pilgrims, they could, they could make a thank offering, right? If you actually survived the trip through Jericho, you want to say, thank God my family made it. And I'm going to make an offering in the Holy of Holies. I'm going to go to the priest and I'm going to be made right with God. And God's going to bless me. I'm going to have good crops and I'm going to have lots of kids. And this is going to be great. God bless me. All I have to do is find one of these. Oh, yeah. Or one of those. Oh. Or two of these. And kill them. And bleed them. And make a fire. 
and burn it up. And maybe, just maybe, if you had the right one of those, or one of those, or one of these, or two of those, God might bless you if you burned them up just right. And God could smell the steak burning from heaven. You go, mmm, that's good. I think I'm bless those people. That's what they thought. That's how it worked. You see, the cattle, sheep, and doves were required for burnt temple offerings. It had to be those things. It had to be exact. And the animal had to be perfect, flawless, unblemished. And that's why the Messiah, when Jesus is the perfect, blameless, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. And it's his one sacrifice for all time, for all people in all places, rather than all of these sacrifices of cattle, sheep, and doves over time. Now, this is where it gets tricky. We've already talked about the money changers. But if, if your animal has to be perfect, flawless, and unblemished, who decides? Not you. You have the USDA inspector, Right? You can't just make sacrifices willy-nilly. You've got to have a perfect cattle. You've got to have a perfect sheep. You have to have just right doves. And temple authorities appointed inspectors to examine the victims. That, that's what the scholars call the animals. The victims for a fee. So, if you need a cow to be on the burnt offering, are you going to buy it outside the temple before the inspector or inside the inspected temple cattle? Which are you going to buy? Well, those of us who are cheap, we're going to buy it outside. And we're going to bring it in. And you know what the inspector's going to say? No, 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 no. Try again. Uh, maybe for 50 shekels. Oh, look, it's better. Hey. Or you could buy the temple cattle or sheep. But guess what? You think they cost the same as the, the ones on the outside? Oh, no. No, no, no. It's Passover week, friends. Everybody's got to have one, and you can have one too, but it might cost you two, three, five, ten times as much as what they would cost outside the temple. This makes sense. So you have abuse and the money changing. Once you get your money changed, then you have the abuse in the animals, and then you have the abuse in what kind of animals, and then you have to pay the inspector. You see how this works on the backs of the people trying to be made right with God. Now, this isn't new, friends. This has been going on for at least 500 years, and the prophet Micah rails against it. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calves a year old? No. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? No. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? No. God has told you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice. Now, would anybody here say that what was going on in the temple was just? And to love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. So, two doves outside the temple cost a little. Temple Temple approved doves, well, that's another story. So, William Barclay puts it like this. Let us remember the wrath of Jesus against those who made it difficult and even impossible for the seeking stranger to make contact with God. Jesus looked at people trying to come to God, trying to be made right with God, and those who would stand between someone and God's love and grace and forgiveness. Jesus was upset about this, and rightly so, and rightly so. And so our question, of course, today is, is there anything in what we do 
Is there anything from our marketing outside, from the parking lot, to the songs we sing, to the way we dress, to the words we use that would keep somebody who's trying to know Jesus from knowing Jesus? And if the answer is yes, that's got to go. It's got to go. It's got to get out of the way. Because we are about nothing more and nothing less than people coming to know the life-saving relationship of Jesus Christ. Amen? So whatever it is, friends, there's nothing that stands in the way. Now, in 2006, uh, we built the chapel across the way. It was our sanctuary at the time. This sits right outside my office. Uh, You all know what these are? Air conditioning units. Notice anything interesting about them? They're not the same. Why is that, you might ask? Well... When we, when we bought that over there, we had about 40 families, about 120 people total. And uh, we, we did everything we could to do value engineering, just to get in and survive. Well, we used about 8 to 12 residential units all along both sides so that we could get into that building. And it worked until it got really hot in August. And then this first unit here stopped working. And we were growing, and we'd gone from one service to two services to three services to four services. And it was August. Bible school was around us. It was like 108. I was sweating it out in my office. And I go to Jeff, and I'm like, hey, Jeff, it's hot in here. He goes, I know, it's so hot. I said, we, we got to get that air conditioner fixed. He says, yes, we do. I'm like, okay, so is it a fan belt? We need a little Freon. You know, what is it? Let's just, you know, let's get that fixed because we're dying. And, and it probably won't be too much, right? You know, just, just a little fix. You know what the guy told us? He said, you can't fix that. I thought he was punking us. I said, what do you mean you can't fix an air conditioner? Of course you can fix an air conditioner. Just, you know, put some Freon in it. He says, no, no, no. The year you bought those, the reason they were so cheap, that was the last year they made those. The EPA outlawed the refrigerant that's in that unit. You can't buy it. You can't fix it. I can't get you a part. And if I did, I might go to jail. I said, well, then what are we to do? You know what he said? You need a whole new unit. Can't fix that. That's what Jesus does at the temple. It's not just about the abuses, friends. He's saying the whole thing's got to go. Don't, don't be fooled that you've got to travel from all over the world to get to Jerusalem to find God. No, God is on the move. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says. And I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the risen one, the, the, the Messiah. The, you're going to tear down this body. I'm going to bring it up in three days. God's going to raise it up. You'll see. People didn't know what to do with this. So the Jews were upset, rightly so. They asked, what credentials can you present to justify this? And Jesus says, tear down the temple. Now, he was talking about his body, but they thought, you know, the temple temple. And in three days, I'll put it back together. They were indignant. They're like, look, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to rebuild it in three days? Because the rebuilding of the temple began in 19 BC. It's not going to be completed until 64. Jesus is disrupting the entire system. No ties could be taken because the money wasn't right. No sacrifices could be made because the animals were gone. Jesus is turning it all over. And as he came near and saw the city, he weeps over it. Jesus isn't mad at the Jews. He's desperate to try to save them, and they won't listen. In the Gospel of Luke, he says this, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And that's exactly what the Romans do in 70 AD and burn it to the ground. Jesus 
prophesies over Jerusalem. He says, they will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. And tragically, he was right. The temple's gone in 70, only in its glory for six years, from 64 to 70. So Jesus says, no, no, no. There's a new temple. It lasts forever, and it's wherever it goes. Because Jesus was talking about his body. And later, after Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this. And then they put two to two together, and they believed both what was written in the Scripture and what Jesus had said. Because Jesus was talking about his body dying and being raised. Not any particular location. You see, friends, as Messiah, as God himself, Jesus is the location, the locus of God's presence in the world is the person of Jesus Christ, now present to every one of us in the Spirit, all around the world. Not the temple. Now, of course, you might say, well, isn't God in church? Yes, if God wants to be, but not only here. Not only here. This is where we learn about God, to go out and see Jesus everywhere. We worship Jesus wherever we see Jesus. Does this make sense? Hopefully we're teaching you how to worship God, how to respond to God here, so that wherever you see him out there, you see him, you recognize him, you hear his voice, you see what he's doing. Because God is no longer located in one place, friends, or time, or by one people. It's no longer one sacrifice for one family who happens to be Jewish. It's God himself choosing to sacrifice himself for all people, every nation, every place, all around the world. So our action steps, friends, are these. Let me ask you, where do you see God on the move? Outside the church walls. We're doing confirmation interviews with our 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. They're so cute. They're so awesome. And we say to them, how are you going to follow Jesus? And almost without fail, they're going to say, well, I'm going to come to church. To which I say, well, that's how you learn to follow Jesus. How are you going to follow Jesus? And of course, worship is a part of it, but it's just the first step, right? How are you going to follow Jesus? Where do you see God on the move outside in the world? All seven days a week. And what will you do to join God in the world? Because God is on the move, friends. No longer stuck in a temple, no longer traveling around in the tabernacle, but in you and in me. Spirit of the living God, Jesus Christ, the risen one, alive and well in you and all around the world. When you see God, join him. Amen.